We uh, come out of John 9 this morning in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John. We come into chapter 10. And remember that these, these chapter breaks are, are uh, late, so to speak, additions to just give us an addressing system for the text. The, when the uh, Apostle John sat down and wrote his gospel, he did not write it with, with chapter and verse numbers. But this addressing system sure is handy, and we're glad we've got it. There's no break between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Uh, In fact, chapter 10, verse 21, shouts back to the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. So it seems that this this discourse from Jesus that we encounter in chapter 10, he's speaking to the very same people in the very same setting as the the aftermath of the healing of the one born blind. Um, So there's really no time that has passed since that miracle of healing. This Um, chapter does more to unfold the metaphor of a shepherd leader than any other chapter in the entire word of God. And the idea of a shepherd leader is is commonplace throughout the word of God. In the the New Testament, there are are three words used for those who would would occupy the office of, of under Jesus, leaders of the local church. They're used interchangeably. One word, often translated elder, is, is, is a word that means elder, uh, old, old man, literally. The other one is, is the word that literally means overseer, and that often is translated bishop. Those are the same office. Elder and bishop are the same office. The third word is, is pastor, and it literally means shepherd. So New Testament Church leadership is supposed to be in the manner of shepherding. In the Old Testament, the metaphor of shepherd as leader recurs over and over again, including several passages that describe the coming Messiah as one who will be a shepherd. In fact, in the Old Testament, um, I, I suppose you could make an argument against this, but I think I'm safe to say the two greatest and most influential leaders of God's people in the Old Testament, God's nation of Israel, are Moses and David. And both of them were trained by God for for spectacularly noteworthy leadership of God's people. They were trained as shepherds. So shepherd as a a guiding word picture of of what leadership looks like among those people who would know God is is an extraordinarily well-established idea in the Word of God. But there is only one great shepherd. There's only one we can be speaking of when we speak of the shepherd. That is Jesus. And this passage, which I have entitled The Shepherd and the Sheep, tells us quite a lot about his shepherding. Now, I have to point out that when we, when we describe Jesus as a great shepherd, and when we look throughout God's word at, at shepherds as leaders, it, it, it actually kind of says something, well, less than complimentary about God's people. Because if, if we are led by shepherds, and we are ultimately the great shepherd, that must mean that we are sheep-like. Now, sheep look good. 
in children's books, you know, the little cotton ball picture. Sheep look good on Christmas cards and in nativity sets. Looking good there, sheep. Sheep look pretty good in ads for New Zealand tourism. You know, the happy... But uh, let's tell each other the truth about sheep, shall we? Sheep are dirty, stinky, belligerent, not all that terribly bright, and prone to get in profound trouble. And yet the word of God says us, we need shepherding. Which says of us that we have a tendency to be dirty, stinky, not terribly bright, and prone to get ourselves in a great deal of trouble. Now, I'm not insulting you, I'm insulting us. But only is it an insult insofar as it's, it's an agreement with with what the Lord says we're like and what we, we need. We need shepherding, and the Lord is himself our great shepherd. The shepherd and the sheep. I'm not gonna read the entire 21-verse passage at one go. We'll read it as we go. Jesus, again, speaking to this same crowd. Now, among this crowd, there are his disciples. Among this crowd, there are the, the uh, dead-set-against-him Jewish leaders. And among this crowd, there are the inevitable Lookers on that are just still sort of taking things in. And Jesus speaks to them. Roman numeral one on your outline, he offers an illustration. He picks up on a a word picture from day-to-day life in Israel. Uh, In this, let me go and, and contextualize this a little bit culturally. In the agrarian culture of first century Israel, uh, most villages would have a number of different shepherds. And, and during the workday, they would have their shepherds out on the hillsides and, and grazing and all that. But most often at night, they would bring their sheep together into a, a commonly owned sheep pen, a sheep holt. And they would, they would all place their flocks in there at night. One, one guy would be hired to watch the gate overnight. And uh, the, the shepherds would go call it a day and get their night's rest. In the morning, they would come back to the sheepfold and the call out their own flock. Their own sheep would recognize the voice of their own shepherd. And if you're a, if you're a pet owner or a dog owner, you know that your, your, your dog knows your voice over everybody else's. Um, sheep the same way. They, would, they, they key on that voice and the, the flocks would be redivided every morning based on what shepherd they were prepared to follow. Jesus' audience would know that mechanism as a part of daily life in Israel. So Jesus grabs that and makes an illustration of it when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, 
but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. In this illustration, there are at least two things that Jesus sort of etches out as truths he wants to establish. First, the truth of his legitimacy. In this illustration, in this setting, the closest analogy to what is the sheepfold is probably the nation of Israel. He's saying to them, you look, Israel, you have had various people come along and claim to lead you in a godly direction. There have been among them, however, some truly ungodly, some fa- there have been false prophets. There have been uh, political rulers who have led in a godless way. There have been all kinds of, of people claiming to shepherd you well who have not done so. I come to you more legitimately than anyone has ever come to you before as the, the shepherd. And the 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 people, the true people of God that I am calling out of national Israel are the people who will hear my voice and follow me because they hear the voice of the good shepherd. And I am calling out of national Israel a people for myself and I am legitimately doing so. Not only his legitimacy, (coughs) pardon me, but his leadership in three ways. He calls his sheep, he leads his sheep, and he keeps his sheep. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, verse three, and his sheep follow him, verse four. Those things are still true today. They're true more broadly today than just the Lord Jesus calling out for himself a people from the nation of Israel as is in view in this illustration. But that's still exactly what it's like for those who come from lostness into salvation. They hear the voice of the great shepherd, Jesus, calling them out of, of where they have been and who they have been, calling them to hear and follow And once they do, they are held by him forever as a part of his flock. His legitimacy and his leadership. He laid that out for them in this illustration and according to the last verse of the paragraph, well, they didn't grasp it. They didn't get it. They did not understand, verse six, what he was saying to them. So Roman numeral two. His identification. He spells it out a bit more explicitly. Now, we have, uh, we have noted from the very time um, now, uh, uh, well, it's been since I think we started on Easter, uh, since we were first orienting ourselves to the Gospel of John. We said that there are seven of these, these uh, epic I am statements in the Gospel of John that are, that are sort of a, one of the recurring themes that weaves through the book. The, the, the Greek verb, a first-person singular Greek verb, has baked into the single word just the form the verb takes, if you're a grammarian. Any Greek verb in the first-person singular has the idea of I am baked into the single word. If you, if you, there's a single word that says I'm running, 
And it's just the first person singular, present tense, of the verb running. If you lift out separate words to emphatically state, I am, you absolutely mean to do so, and it's meant to be extraordinarily emphatic. It's a bit unusual. Seven times in the Gospel of John when Jesus lifts out separate words to state the emphatic, I am, in every one of the cases where Jesus does that, his original hearers certainly understood and we can understand him to be, to be grabbing Moses' conversation with the living God at the burning bush. You remember? Early in the book of Exodus, Moses meets God the Son in the form of a, of a bush that burns but isn't consumed. And in the course of that conversation, toward the end of that conversation, Moses asks, as I fulfill my mission to go and confront Pharaoh, Pharaoh, who claims to know a lot about gods and even be a god himself, is gonna ask, what is the name of the God who has commissioned me, Moses, to kind of confront him? What do I tell him your name is? Do you remember what the living God told Moses his name is in that conversation? I am. All others who would claim to be God aren't. I am. So these seven times in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I am, he is, he is reaching back to a conversation that he remembers because he was there with Moses at that burning bush. Two of those seven are in this next paragraph as Jesus identifies himself as the living God with the I am and then fleshes it out with the statement, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door in verse three, reiterated in verse nine. And then I am the good shepherd. Those are the third and fourth of the seven strategic I am statements in our Roman numeral two, his identification. So Jesus said to them, <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Three things here about his identification of himself as the good shepherd. 
Um, number one, he's the shepherd who provides. Verses seven through 10. There are various claimants to leadership, even ultimate authority, but their motive is to steal, kill, and destroy. They are accomplices of the thief. The, the enemy of your soul, the devil and those in league with him, and he has many, many allies. Their motive is to steal, kill, and ultimately destroy your soul. The thief. You say, Brother Russell, that sounds like, sounds like misery. And while I look around me in the world these days, I, I, I see some turmoil. But you know, my neighborhood's kind of peaceful. People putting up lights this weekend, walking to dogs and saying hi, coming and going to work, family coming and going for the holidays. It doesn't, it doesn't look like there's a bunch of stealing, killing, and destroying going on. I don't deny that there are parts of the world where you can certainly see it. But many of us dwell in places where you can't at a glance. I thought about that. And I thought, well, you ever, you ever driven past a well-run cow pasture? Let's say specifically a beef cattle pasture. My, how peaceful and content it looks. Just well-fed munching on their grass or hay or whatever they're munching on. I'm certain making bovine small talk, <laughs> sports and weather and how's your family and stuff. Well cared for. Unstressed. And coming to an outback steakhouse near you. A well-run slaughtering operation does not make the cows miserable. And Satan is running this world as a smooth and efficient slaughterhouse. And he doesn't mind how content you are as he sets you up for the steal, the kill, and the ultimate destroy. Because that's what the thief does. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not like that. I provide. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, this verse gets abused. I'm going to chase this rabbit for just a moment. This verse is one of the most abused verses there are. There are yeah, there is. By those who preach the false gospel of the, of the prosperity movement. The health and wealth gospel. The gospel of the uh, the God wants you rich, healthy, and happy. Christian history won't let that gospel stand up. The word of God won't let that gospel stand up. That gospel is not the gospel. And yet they take this verse and say, see, the Lord wants you to have life abundantly. Why are you still flying around in a G4 when we're all the way up to, I think, G7 now? Because the Lord wants you to have abundant life. Why are you living with a knee that hurts? The Lord wants you to have abundant life. 
They say that stuff and mean it. You hear mess like that, you change the channel, you find another church, you tune out because what you're hearing is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, in this world you will have suffering. He's promised it. This word abundantly here doesn't mean rich, it doesn't mean successful, it doesn't mean happy, it means full. To put it in a pretty accurate 21st century paraphrase, what Jesus is saying here is, I've come that they might have life, <laughs> and it won't be dull. It won't be dull. You get serious about following me, your life's gonna get full of interesting things. That's what abundant life is. And he said, I, uh, I'm a shepherd who provides. Second, he's a shepherd who protects. The hireling, the amateur, he'll bug out at the first sign of trouble. He won't be with you through the hard times. And he certainly won't do what the ultimate good shepherd has done, which is lay down his life for the sheep. If you know God at all today, you know God by the only means, the only means whereby descendants of Adam and Eve can know God. And that is through the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason that you can't have that access to God by the person of Jesus Christ is the, the good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus Christ went to the cross and by his death paid the sin debt that you and I owe an inflexibly just God. We owed a debt we could not pay apart from our spending eternity in hell. But God the Son himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, went to the cross on our behalf and laid down his life for the sheep so that anyone who will turn from their sin, cry out from their place of desperate need, for a savior and follow the voice of the great shepherd will be known by him and will know him and will be kept by him because he's the shepherd that protects and let her see on, his, on your outline he's the shepherd that pursues this, this statement in verse 16 is sometimes a little bit enigmatic I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock, one shepherd. The most controversial idea in first century Christianity was the notion that Gentile believers could come to the Jewish Messiah and by relationship with him, be known to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob without coming through the door of converting to Judaism first. That a Gentile could turn from their sin, trust Jesus by faith, having, having, having never heard of circumcision, having never heard of the dietary restrictions of the Jewish law, having never even heard the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they could cry out in repentance and faith to the God of Israel and be saved forever. 
Well, in the first century, that idea was, that was those were practically fighting words. <clears throat> Even early Jewish Christians struggled to understand how that could be true. Here, remember that sheepfold that Jesus was illustrating at the start of the chapter is probably the nation of Israel. And here Jesus is saying, I'm going for sheep. I am going to pursue sheep that aren't Jewish ethnically. And by the time I'm done, there will be a, a worldwide flock. Doesn't mean that, that all churches have to be homogeneously stamped out of the same mold, but that all who know Jesus are following Jesus in what is ultimately one flock with one shepherd. And certainly the Jewish Gentile distinction is broken down. Now for many of us, that's incredibly good news. Uh, most of what I know about the Howard ethnicity is that it, it comes from the UK. doesn't come from Israel. And so from the perspective of, of my Jewish Christian friends, I'm an outsider and a newcomer. I'm a bandwagoner on knowing the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yet he has thrown open the door and let me in in the person of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. And if you're a believer with a non-Jewish background, you also are a newcomer and a bandwagoner. And you also ought to be glad for verse 16 that we have a, we have a shepherd that has pursued us all the way to where we were. And by the way, the takeaway for that for us, you and me today, this is not just a sterile, safe, first century idea. What Jesus is saying to his first century followers is, get ready, a bunch of people are gonna be coming in that don't look like you. They don't come from where you come from. They don't think like you think. They don't have a background like your background. They might not have a, 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 a melanin level like your melanin level. They might not like the songs you've always sung. They might not think the way you've always thought. They might have missed out on vacation Bible school stories and know nothing. And I'm going to go after them because I'm the great shepherd who pursues. And our job, those of us who've been in this flock for a while, <clears throat> is to have our eyes, ears, and hearts open to incoming sheep who ain't like us. Right? Brother Russell, that can get a little bit disorienting. Oh, I know. But he's a shepherd who pursues. And somewhere back there, he came for you if you're a child of God. And so surely you have not forgotten how grateful you are that Jesus has saved you and how excited and ready you are for him to save others, even if they're not stamped out of the same die you are. Shepherd who pursues his identification. Letter, I mean, Roman numeral three. His investiture. Might not be a word you've used in a sentence this week. I needed a word that started with I. Yes, I'm pathological in my need to alliterate at times. For the assuming of one's authoritative office. A word that starts with I that means the assuming of one's authoritative office. Now, again, scouts honor, I don't use a thesaurus. Mom, 
You're watching. I don't, mom, mom would regard the use of a thesaurus as cheating. But I knew the word. It's an obscure word, but it's a perfectly good word. The investiture of someone, you can, you can use inauguration in the same way, but I like investiture. I like occasionally dusting off slightly archaic words. It's a probably mental illness. But his, his taking on of authority. See, he's been God the Son forever. But he became the sacrifice for sinners when he took upon himself the role of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We talk, he, he alludes to this in verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Underline that. Make a circle around that. Write yourself a note to remember that when we get to Easter a few months from now. It will revolutionize your understanding of the events around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus if you understand what he just said. There is no force in the universe that could have held Jesus on that cross apart from the will of his Father seen through the lens of his love for you. Roman nails cannot hold God to a wooden cross. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority Take it up again. By the way, that idea of authority is an important idea. So much so, I'm going to devote this, this week's Beyond the Notes to talking about authority. Let me tease that with a quick definition. This is not in your notes. Um, we'll talk about it more on Beyond the Notes this week on the podcast. Authority is permission to act or to direct others to act as I will without legitimate opposition. When I am acting in authority, I have permission to act and to direct others to act in the way I desire without anyone being able to legitimately oppose me. That's authority. And here Jesus has authority over life and death and life again. Authority is critically important. And I'll say only this about it and then I'll move on. It can only be gotten one way. There is only one path to authority. And it might surprise you what it is. Moving along, Roman numeral four, his insanity. I put it in quotes because they said there was again a division among the Jews because of his words, these words. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember, the guy who not that long ago had no working optical hardware is standing right there with a full set of working optical hardware. And there's never been a demon that could pull that off. 
See, if you, if you take Jesus' words without his deeds, you can accuse him of, of hyper-narcissistic insanity. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the means to eternal life. But when you take his words and view them in light of his deeds, that takes insane off the table. It takes dishonest off the table. You, you, you cannot intellectually call him a liar, not after he built eyes from scratch. You can't call him loony because again, he has replaced optical hardware that just well, didn't replace it. He installed it from nothing. So the only intellectually honest explanation you have is he's telling the truth. The same is true today, my friend. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you, you can't get away with, well, he was a great man and a great teacher, but it's a bit over the top to say he was God. He said he was God. There are no great teachers who say they're God unless they're nuts or God. And you can't make the accusation of nuts stick to Jesus because of the deeds that he did. He's God. And you're only legitimate option is to follow him as Lord if you've never done so. And if you are already a child of his, then may we be renewed in our love and gratitude for the great shepherd of the sheep.